Hey everyone, I'm Brenda and I'm Julia, and you're listening to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Your 20s are known as both the most exciting and most confusing years of your life. We're here to share our stories, to have real and raw conversations, and best of all, to make you feel a little less alone. This podcast was brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Today, we have on with us a very anticipated guest, Dr. Meg Jay. Dr. Meg Jay is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor of human development at the University of Virginia, who specializes in 20-somethings, which is why she's absolutely perfect for us here. And today, we're going to talk about her book, The Defining Decade. She just put out the updated version of the book. It'll be available once this podcast is out. We're very excited to talk about the updated version. And the title of the book is The Defining Decade, Why Your 20s Matter and How to Make the Most of Them Now, which is exactly what this podcast is about. <laughs> so Dr. Meg, we are so excited to have you. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. We are so excited. We're going to get into so many topics, a lot of them that we've brushed through before, but we're really going to get deep into some of those things. So I'm very excited. So before we get going into all the 20s things, tell us a little bit about you, who you are, where you're from, and if you don't mind saying how old you are. Okay, I do not mind. I am out of my 20s. I am 51, but I've spent my entire adult life on 20s in that I was a 20-something Gen Xer in the 90s. So, you know, the friends generation and all that, which is full circle, right? So I feel like it just keeps coming around for me. And then right around the time I was 30, I started specializing in 20-somethings. I was getting my PhD at Berkeley and clinical psych and was specializing. I started specializing in 20-somethings, which we could talk about later if you like. And then now have spent the last shockingly 20 years talking to 20-somethings, listening to 20-somethings, surrounded by 20-somethings. I put the defining decade out about 10 years after I started. That was around when I was about 40-ish. And then now the 10-year anniversary like updated edition is just coming out. So that takes me all the way to 50. But the whole 30 years of my adulthood has been spent on 20-somethings in some way or another. And frankly, it's a great way to spend the time. Definitely. Thank you. Why, thank you. Here we (laughs) Around here thinking we're the worst, but again, we're the best. No, it's it's a great way. It's a great Uh, career. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So we are going to assume that some of our audience who's listening here today will have read the the at least the first version of the book, maybe the updated version, depending on when they're listening, and some that don't. So we'll try and be general enough so that people who haven't read it can still you know grasp all of the wisdom that you have. So what led you to first why twenty somethings, and then what led you to wanting to write the updated version of the book? So why 20 something? So like I said, I was at Berkeley getting a degree in clinical psych. And as part of that, you work with a bunch of different age groups. So I worked with kids, I worked with older adults, I worked with elderly folks, just the whole range. And I was in a college town. So a lot of my clients were college students, 20 somethings. And what I noticed was that you could do a lot of good for people in a very short period of time if they were in their 20s. And I I actually thought I would really want to work with children. But working with children, there's a huge cast of characters. Parents need to be on board. 
you're talking to pediatricians and teachers and meeting siblings. I mean, it's a huge cast of characters. And I think I often felt like I wasn't able to really impact their lives if I couldn't impact their whole system or environment. And what's so great about 20-somethings is they've just launched, they're on their own, they're pretty agile and So you can get in there and like help them make moves without worrying about parents and teachers and, you know, whatever else. So that really appealed to me. But also I learned about this area of study called adult development, which I'd never heard of. And like most people thought, well, that's weird. I thought adults were already developed. But if you look at a 20 year old and you look at a hundred year old, everything that happens from 20 to 100 is adult development. And what was really not recognized at the time, which is more so now, largely because of the defining decade, is that your 20s are kind of the developmental sweet spot of adult development. It's like the first five years of child development, like that we know that you get in there and that's when people are getting their first jobs and having their first big relationships. And that's when mental health gets both worse and better all at the same time. And that if you can get in there and kind of get in front of everything that's coming, you can have a huge impact on someone's life. Sometimes in the course of five sessions or five months or one book. So it's kind of hard to walk away from that, that just that ability to do a lot of good in a short period of time. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really the reason why we started this podcast very similarly is like, you know, me and Brenda, but we're both 25 now. And we were like, one, nobody's talking to us Two, I am what you say in your book. <laughs> and God. But also, it does feel like for us, I know for Brenda and I and for all of our friends, like we were kind of like thrown out into this world, you're no longer a student anymore. And like, everything changes. And when you talk about the developmental period, it's so relevant to I know us and our friends, I don't want to speak for the whole world. But like, I know that in my 25th year so far, and I'm only halfway through, I have changed more in mm-hmm. here than I think in my entire life. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Months since yeah. Months in August, I think I have changed the most <laughs> than like <laughs> I, I would not be surprised. So most people don't know this, but your personality changes more in your 20s than any time before or after. And so, I mean, if you think about it, your brain is changing. It's going through its second big growth spurt. Work is changing. Life is changing. Love is changing. Sexuality is changing. Your environment's changing. And so that's all working on your brain and it's all sort of knitting together. And so people change so much um, from 20 to 30. And so it's just such an amazing opportunity from where I sit. And as you point out, I mean, I I wanted to work with 20-somethings because I felt like it was an incredibly important time that was being largely trivialized in Mm -hmm. popular culture as like kind of this sort of silly throwaway time. And also by treating it that way, people weren't acknowledging how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. It is a defining decade and a very difficult decade. And so there's a lot of work to be done there. People need to have these conversations in the open and they need someone to be talking to them. And so that was, um, I think one of your questions was, how did I end up writing The Defining Decade? It was after 10 years of working with 20-somethings and realizing, you know, my private practice was overflowing, my office hours, you know, teaching at uh, UC Berkeley and then at UVA were overflowing. And I felt like somebody needs to 
write all this down and get it out there. So that was me. You did it beautifully. Um, I want to jump into something that you talk about in the book, which you call the under 30 set. Can you talk about what that means? And when I read that, I was like, what defines somebody as a child versus an adult? Because us 20 somethings feel like we're wandering between the two. In between. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th- that's funny you picked that out. I think I just threw that phrase in there of just people under 30 that if I remember correctly, I think I was saying something about enough people talking about the under 30 set. And what if we talk to them with them? you know, have a conversation with them was was the point of that. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know the line between being a child or a teenager and a teenager and an adult. And I mean, I don't think anybody does. But what we do know is that kind of the adult milestones, mm-hmm. the things that people say, okay, I'm officially an adult because tend to be things like, all right, I really have sort of a either my first job or a solid career or I pay my own bills or I have a partner or I'm married or I have a house or I have a baby. That those are things that traditionally, and that may, you know, one day just no longer be the case, but traditionally have been seen of like, these are adult milestones. And so we know those happen later now than they used to on average, closer to 30. It used to be before my time, but like in the 1970s, it was like, these things were happening at 20. Yeah. Which is yeah. amazing. Amazingly terrifying, I should totally. say. So um, now they're happening closer to 30, which is an amazing opportunity if you use the time before those things well. And so I think, you know, a lot of 20-somethings feel like, well, I can't be an adult because I don't have all those things. She just rattled off. I have one or two. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it like, matters, you know, at, at what point somebody does or doesn't officially become an adult as much as they sort of engage with the process of of their own development of what is the life that I want for myself, no matter what I do or don't call myself and mm. and how do I I take ownership for that I think mm. at some point in people's 20s they realize often quite shockingly that whatever's ahead is up to them yeah and that's a little bit uh, terrifying and empowering um, but that's that is a big shift I think toward adulthood is realizing it's actually your life Yeah, definitely. I love that you mentioned taking ownership because I think that that's a big piece. You know, I feel like we're, I don't want to say distracted because a lot of times growing up in school and stuff, you're given these tasks in hopes of somehow along the way, figuring out what you want to do, who you are, everything. But I feel like it's only now that like Julia and I and our friends have started to just like be introspective and be like, wait, so if, if nobody could tell me anything, what would I actually want out of my life? What I actually want to be? And you don't Uh really think about that stuff before then, you know, right. you're constantly trying to, you know, Jump do a lot the of your uh-huh. part. Yeah. You're yeah. always working towards something. And then I don't think we take the time to say, is this something that I'm choosing something I actually want, you know? So it's, it's right. really, and coming back to the ownership piece, coming to a place where you're like, okay, it really is up to me. Like it's no one, I think that's something we've seen is no one can f- really force you to do certain things. You do have a choice. Sometimes the external pressure might feel like you don't have a choice, but at the end of the day, we do have 
that ownership. And sometimes that becomes complicated. I know for people that struggle with their mental health, sometimes after college, um, it can be hard to want to take control of something like that. And, you know, maybe see a therapist or, or do something like that, because it feels so different from anything you've ever done before. But you write in the book that it's that the book is about questions and not answers. And we've learned so much from our guests specifically mm-hmm. on how important it is to be asking ourselves questions in order to figure out what life we want to lead or what actually makes us happy. And then you also wrote, quote, <laughs> uh, clients don't fear being asked the tough questions. What they fear is that they won't be asked the tough questions. Yeah. So how do we know what the right questions are? And what's your number one question that you think we should be asking ourselves? Uh, there's a lot there, all of which I'm just I'm so on board with right now, because one thing I've been I've been reflecting on is I think during the pandemic, I've gotten a lot of emails from very stressed out 20 something saying, oh, my gosh, you know, the pandemic is happening in the middle of my defining decade. Am I done for? What does this mean? And one thing that I've I've also gotten a lot of emails from people saying I've taken this time to read your book and really reflect and not be distracted and not be jumping through hoops because unfortunately I can't currently jump through any hoops and and to figure out what I want going forward. And I do think, I know people are stressed about, you know, maybe I can't get my dream job or any job this year. What does that mean for me? Um, But one thing we can all do, even during a pandemic, maybe especially is reflect, is slow down and think a minute about okay, if this is my life, and as the pandemic has shown me, time is limited, you know, I may suddenly we realize, wow, you know, there's a year gone, I don't have maybe as much time as I thought I did, what do I want to do with that? So, you know, the tough questions asked my clients are very client specific, you know, if if it's relationships, I'm going to get tough there. If it's, you know, people not kind of, I think, being honest with themselves about work, I'm going to focus on that. But in general, I think the book is really about time and asking yourself the tough questions of this, this doesn't sound tough, the general question of where do you want to be in five or 10 years, it's only tough, because it's that's difficult to pin down, it's scary to like, even put something out there. But there's tough questions that follow from that, which is, okay, if you think that's what it is, Maybe. I mean, we're just rough sketch. Where do you want to be in five or 10 years? What are you doing to get there? What are you not doing? And why aren't you doing it? Or kind of a different version of that is, is there anything you're doing right now that you don't want to be doing in five years? And if, if you're saying yes, or you're, that's resonating with you, then the question is, when are you going to stop doing it? And why are you still doing it? And so for me, The Defining Decade is really a book that's about time. And it's about questions and having people really look at themselves in the mirror and ask, you know, whether or not they feel like they're using their time well, because they may not have as much of it as they think they do. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it made me think about something that you said before in terms of like people doing things later on in their life. I really think that it's so validating to obviously we know that that's happening but you phrase something specifically i think it was like in terms of like marriage and stuff like that that i feel like our generation and this is a little off topic but it just came to my head um about like marriage and and dating and such and that i feel like our generation is looked at as oh you know they take so long to do everything they take so long to commit but in the way that you flipped it it was like no they actually take the time to think about you know what it is that they want and ask themselves those questions of who who do they want like what do they want their life partner to be like and you know being financially stable and all of these things that i don't know that i feel like our generation does get some 
some slack for? Oh, Lord. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that, so as a Gen Xer, that the adult milestones were pushed back for us also. I mean, I think the average age of marriage has been late twenties since Gen X and beyond. So this is a, every, you know, 10 years or so, it's sort of, what's the problem with so-and-so? And so, you know, I really, I think it makes good headlines and it makes, you know, for some good clickbait and eye rolling. But I mean, there are a lot of reasons, many of which are economic, that these things are happening later than they used to. And it's actually an amazing opportunity to, you know, get in front of them, to think them through, to try out different kinds of relationships, try living in different states, to take some career risks, to change your habits and like, and really get to know who you are before you worry about who you want or who wants you but to really figure out who you are. So I I think sometimes maybe people misinterpret the defining decade as I'm saying, like, you need to hurry up and do all this stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's really a book about you need to hurry up and get in front of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that um, to use this time, I'm assuming people are going to, quote, settle down later. So given that, what can you do to kind of assure that you settle down in a way that you feel good about when the time comes. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that. One of the things that I think when it comes back to the questioning that is a struggle, and you talk about this in the book, because this version specifically has more to do with social social media, because it's such a part of your lives. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the questions that I've seen, you know, our friends and ourselves ask ourselves is like, you know, what all of those questions and also like, is that really making me happy? Is that really what I want to do? Or like, is that because I feel like I have to live up to some standard on social media or some standard that my parents said, like getting, it's like those questions that we talked about and then getting even like deeper into the questions of like, is that really making me happy? Or is this for the highlight reel? Absolutely. Coming back to. I had a um, client, I think it was in the updated version because it was recently and I I think it made it in there. I hope it did. But yeah, I'm sure it did. But, you know, so there's a lot more about social media in the updated version than there was in the original version. However, I will say that the defining decade original version was one of the first places to talk about the negative impact of social media. And I don't have a thing for it or against it. I was just going off what my clients were telling me. And so I was working with 20 somethings starting in like 1999. The first first client I had, she was in her 20s. So I worked with them before there was any social media. And then I saw them all join. (laughs) So, you know, I literally, hey, I'm going to sign up for this thing called Facebook. And I'm like, whatever. And then they would come in the next week and say, Oh, my God, I hate my life. And so it was really interesting, because this was before the data was out, you know, was there were no studies on this. I mean, there were barely I think when I did research for the chapter, which at the time was called my life should look better on Facebook, because that was the only game in town for social media, there were like two or three studies. And I cited them. But what the chapter was really about is what my clients were saying is that that they go on and their brains are just bombarded by the highlight reels. And that's got them really confused about where they stand and how they're doing and what they wanted and how they feel. And so I know Facebook is like old news now, but you know, Instagram is owned by Facebook. It's just a different version of the same thing. And and so anyway, I, I, 
talk a lot with my clients about let's reflect on how much, you know, how do you use your devices? How much time do you spend on what? Is that working for you? How does that make you feel? How does that not make you feel? And anyway, I had a client. So I said, okay, she said, I think my social media use is great for me. And (laughs) okay, so let's figure it out. So I said, go home and figure out your usage and come back. Let's talk about it. So she came back and she said, well, I figured out I'm on Instagram for three hours. She was kind of cringing. And I said, per, you know, very much hoping she would say per week, but knowing she would say per day and it was per day. And so, um, so yes, I think if you're going to spend that much time seeing other people's best moments and achievements, their personal achievements, even ones that are legit and authentic and meaningful for them, they're still different what may be authentic and meaningful for you. And so it's very difficult for your brain to constantly be working against that, even though the education's out there that, hey, you know, all this comparing, it makes people feel bad, but your brain still has to unwind it every time. And probably the best um, comparison is, you know, maybe back in the 80s, 90s was when there was sort of a big kind of education around women's magazines and the covers of magazines and the photoshopping and the bodies weren't realistic and how you have to say, you know, okay, can't compare myself to that. But you would see a women's magazine on your coffee table or at the checkout line or at the hairdresser, but it wasn't, you know, three hours a day, like right here in your phone. So it's so much. I think people just really don't realize what an emotional exercise it is for people to be like battling, battling against that all day, every day. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen it time and time again. I mean, we have these conversations and I feel like Julia and I, at least once an episode, some at some point come up to talking about social media. And although we logically know that if someone posts a snapshot of themselves and I don't know, their significant other diving in Dubai. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they didn't, you know, maybe get into a little argument five minutes before you have no idea. Right. You know, in that moment, you have to do that whole thing. Mm -hmm. You have to actually like think about it because your initial response, especially in areas that we feel personally insecure about, um, let's say about career, right? Like Mm -hmm. seeing someone who you love and care for and are proud of and seeing them excel in some sort of area, you're happy for them. But a piece of you is like, ooh, should I be doing that? Should I be there? How shameful, you know? So it's, it really, it really does get to us even when we know, which is why I think having these conversations like your book, but also the ones that we talk about is in efforts of making people feel like they're not the only ones having these feelings. Right. And to help them realize the the most important conversation that you have is with yourself of what what do I want? What makes me feel good? I mean, because we're up against this. I mean, not just in social media, but I was thinking because we're talking about when I was in grad school, I remember when I was at Berkeley, typical, you know, top tier academic environment, it was well, you've got to be research, you've got to be tenure track, that's, that's the thing to be. And I remember having to really work hard to keep my head straight that that actually wasn't what I wanted, that I wanted to work directly with people and have a private practice and write books and go my own way. But I was sort of constantly battling against that. It was sort of a little microcosm of social media in a way of, you know, no, this is the thing. Everybody needs to do it. But really hold on what actually made me happy and what was success for me. And of course, that's that's the way you should go. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so important sometimes to like try to shut out the noise a little bit and really be like, is that even what I want? Right, right. Hopefully it's not. 
might look good on paper, might look good on TikTok or whatever, but is that actually what I wanted? Exactly. So this term defining decade, you quote in the book that 80% of life's most defining moments take place by age 35, which at first glance can feel scary. (laughs) Um, Like, oh my God. Um, So what what is like the balance between all these things we're talking about, about like asking yourself the deep questions, being proactive about this time in your life, really using this time and also like not, not getting overwhelmed by that and not beating ourselves up when maybe we make mistakes and not feeling like everything is like end all be all. All Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where's that balance? Yeah. You know, I think it's remembering that, well, I'll back up and say one thing I felt like I got to do in the updated version of the defining decade was state very clearly that your life does not fall off a cliff at 30. And so I think when the first edition of the book came out, there was a, a fair bit of hysteria around, you know, that I was saying, you know, whatever you haven't done by 30, it can never be done. And, you know, it's life is over and everything's got to get done by 30. But, you know, I like the, the statistic about, you know, 80% of life's most defining moments happen by age 35, because if that's 35, we're not talking about 30 and we're not talking about 35 at midnight, but that if that's roughly true, that no matter where you are in your 20s, you're probably somewhere in this, you know, so-called defining decade, that you're making choices, you're making moves, you're beating people that are going to have an inordinate impact on the years to come. I mean, that's just almost physics, right? That the stuff that happens early on is going to lead to other things that happen later that are connected to what happened early on. So, um, but the part I try to remind people is that the second part of that very study, which was that, which I preferred, or what I thought was the coolest part was that those defining moments that happened before 35, that most of the time the people said they didn't even realize they were happening. They weren't these, you know, grand, you know, end all be all jobs or people or moves. They were little things that they didn't even recognize the importance at the time. And I think a lot of the book is about how little things that you might do right in your 20s can lead to really big payoffs in your 30s and 40s. And you just maybe don't even know it. That takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. So Yeah. So it's, I mean, I'm talking about, and you know, so people write and say, Oh my God, I'm 29. I can never do everything that you've suggested, or I only have a year left to get to define my decade. But, you know, I remind them you could meet one person this year that ends up taking your life in the direction you want, or you Mm -hmm. could, you know, some of this panic that you're having might lead to you taking action on something that is a course correction for you. And so the cool thing about people's lives in their twenties, like you don't have to rearrange everything. If you just do little course corrections, it's like the metaphor that I use in the book and in my Ted talk, it's that working with 20 somethings is like working with planes just after takeoff. And if you just do a small course correction, it has an enormous impact on where you land. So, so yeah, I mean, what you're doing now affects what's coming. You also have multiple opportunities to course correct. So it's not just like one or two things, but most of the things people do that later they go, man, that worked out, or that was a great thing. They're small. They just maybe didn't even realize at the time where they would lead. Yeah. So, um, here's a little something that you may or may not know about me. I don't sleep well. No, I'm a horrid, 
horrid sleeper, but I'm really good at staying awake and staring at my ceiling and having anxiety and thinking about everything that one could possibly think about when you're supposed to be going to bed. So I'm always looking for new ways to get my shit together because it's not fun. You know, my head hits the pillow, bam, my mind is rising. I'm sure some of you can relate. Yeah, it fucking sucks. Fortunately, I finally found something that helps. I found Sunday Scaries and realized that they make products specifically for overthinkers and night owls like me. Hello, drag me through the mud for the overthinking. Sunday Scaries CBD gummies help me decompress, clear my head, and fall asleep so I can actually wake up and be a fully functioning human being and do all the cool good shit that I gotta do. So, let me tell you, there is no risk to buy. This company offers 100% lifetime money back guarantee. If the product's not for you, that's okay. You'll get your money back. Sunday Scaries is in the stress relieving business, not the stress causing business. Thank you, Sunday Scaries. And just because I like them so much, we got you 25% off to prove it. All you have to do is go visit sundayscaries.com. Use our promo code 20s. For your discount, that's promo code 20s, T-W-E-N-T-I-E-S, for 25% off, yes, 25% off at sundayscaries.com. You're effing amazing. You won't regret joining the squad. Head over to sundayscaries.com, use our promo code 20s, and get yourself some incredible Sunday Scaries CBD gummies. And if you're sleeping better, you're welcome. You're so welcome. Go use that promo code now and fix your life. Okay, bye. Attention, attention. Calling all sneaker lovers. Calling all sneaker lovers. I have incredible news because our newest sponsor here at Roaring Twenties Podcast is eBay. eBay is the original sneaker marketplace and it is the place to go to cop the pair you've been eyeing. Whether it's a rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you are looking for. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. So a team of experienced sneaker authenticators verified the logo, the box, the stitching, dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee that includes a digital stamp of authenticity and it also protects sellers with a verified return policy. And for you sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection, which is just incredible. So go head over to ebay.com sneakerstoday.ebay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. So go ahead, girl, go get yourself a pair of cute sneaks. You deserve it. Get a pair for your boyfriend, for your dad, your mom, your dog. I don't know. Everybody loves loves a good sneaker. Go head over to eBay and enjoy. Absolutely. And I I really love that you, that you mentioned that because we talk a lot about just staying in motion. I'm sure maybe Julia uh-huh. was about to say the same thing. And we've been talking a lot about how we see people and we see this like on, on our eyes, we see this overnight success and we're like, no, like we're not seeing all of the efforts that people took to get to where they are. So we've been right. trying to use that as a grounding method for even our own, you know, projects and platforms and stuff that, you know, as long as you're consistent, you continue to show up. Of course you stay curious that it's those little efforts that really do end up paying off. And I think 
I think one of our first guests said a quote by Steve Jobs, which was, you can only connect the dots by looking backwards. Right. And I think about that all the time mm-hmm. because there have been so many either instances or situations that we found ourselves in that in at the moment we're like, why is this happening? This makes no sense. And then just a few months later, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I get it now. And I right. can imagine that the same thing applies when it comes to being in your 20s and then years down the line. Right. And, you know, you could think about that for being in your 20s and in this pandemic that you don't know. I mean, what what I've said to so many people who've written to me or, you know, reached out that you you really don't know what dots are being laid out that, you know, you might look back and say, man, you know, I was stuck at home. But because of that, I listened to this podcast, it really changed the way I think about whatever. And now I'm going this way that, you know, for people to not, you know, jump to sort of the worst case scenario, catastrophic thinking of that my defining decade is done or the pandemic has ruined me. I mean, that's the cool thing about your 20s is if you can embrace the uncertainty is that that you really don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And you you bring this up in your book. You talk about in terms of purpose, you talk about identity and identity capital. And I'm going to butcher it if I say it, but I, I remember being like, huh, that makes so much sense. Like the type of value that we add to the things that we do or don't do, but we'll let you dive into us, <laughs> dive into it and break it down for us um, because it really, it just made so much sense. Yeah. So identity capital is not my term, but I am bringing it to the, the broader public, but um, it's the concept. It's kind of in contrast to what they used to talk about as people, you know, are supposed to have their identity crisis. You know, it's got all this sort of drama and I'm going to wander in the woods and have an epiphany and then know forever what I'm going to do. And I mean, maybe the people used to do that, but that's definitely not the way it goes anymore. So that just wasn't a useful kind of paradigm for 20 somethings. I don't think it led to a lot of sort of, I can't do anything till I figure out who I am forever. But the sort of identity capital model came along, which is about how, what if you use your twenties to do things that add value to yourself, you know, whether it's, I'm going to get a degree or I'm going to work at this job where I learn these skills or I'm going to take up this hobby that develops these aspects of myself or I'm going to go on this trip that shows me this part of the world that makes me you know, interesting in a job interview and as a human being. And so if you just kind of keep adding value to yourself and building up pieces of identity capital that these will pay off over time. And, you know, again, with the the small things in your 20s, it's like money, you know, that small investments in your 20s can really, you know, grow a lot, grow exponentially over time. And so I really just talk with clients about you don't have to know what you're going to do forever. This doesn't have to be your last job. I mean, on average, 20 somethings have five jobs before the age of 30. So whenever I have a client who's wrapped around the axle about like, I don't know, is this what I want to do forever? I say, well, sorry, you don't get to do this forever. It'll probably be about two or three years. (laughs) So is this worth two or three years of your time? Is your identity capital there? If so, start it and then see. And if it's adding value to you and you're learning, you know, then you you stick with it. And if it's not, then, you know, you go, you go to the next thing, but with each piece, it, you know, you sort of build up, you know, quote your, your worth. I mean, I, you know, kind of in the career marketplace. Right. You know, at least if it's a job and you know, you know, you thought maybe you wanted to do this and then you end up hating it. Like then at least, you know, that like, that's at least some. Absolutely. You, you've, you've done that. Hey, I got that out of the way. And probably in that job, I've been talking to 
to clients about this recently because some of them have jobs that are not what they would have wanted, but because of the pandemic, they're the ones that they could get or the ones that they have for now and helping them realize that even in like a cruddy job, you're probably learning things that will be useful in another job, you know? So, um, you know, I had a client who actually was helping produce a podcast that she doesn't sound as fun as yours. <laughs> and um, I asked, she said it was a pretty cruddy job. And so I asked her, you know, well, what are you doing exactly? And so she said, well, oh my gosh, everything. I figure out who the guests are and I contact, you know, I have to contact and find inroads into them, write these nice emails to get them to even make contact with me. And then if they're coming on, I have to research their background and I write the questions. So, so I said, okay, so you're doing like networking and you're researching and you're synthesizing and you're I mean so there was a lot of skill building going on it just felt like a cruddy job and so I think sometimes even jobs that don't feel like amazing pieces of identity cap have it in there we just don't coming back to your reflection point we just don't slow down and think about what exactly we were getting out of something yeah I I feel like it's so we keep learning so much that like about reframing and about taking the time to really like take that step back and reflect, okay, what am I taking from this? And sometimes you do have to do that reframing about it. Like you said, like, it's not, yeah, okay, maybe this particular job is a credit job, but like, look at all this stuff that I'm gaining that right. I have on my resume to talk about that'll bring me to the next better job. But in, in relation to that, we talk about potential in the book and like that our 20s are a lot more about potential than proof. And I think the thing that feels scary about the word potential is like not living up to it. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of 20 year olds feel like, well, if I'm doing this job, am I not living up to my potential? Am I not doing what I went to university for? Is this boyfriend less than I have potential for? Is this apartment less than I have potential for? And, right. You know, that spiral. Yeah. So what's the deal with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say the deal with that, I don't know if this is going to be what you want to hear, but my honest answer is, is that I think a lot of my clients live up to their potential eventually, but not in their 20s. And so, um, I mean, I was not living up. I mean, I, I mean, could we all always be doing more? Sure, fine. But I let go of that a long time ago, which you will also enjoy doing in your 30s and 40s. <laughs> but, um, you know, do I feel good about what I've done with my career or what I've, you know, done with this book or that book or, you know, whatever it is? Yeah. Was I doing any of that in my 20s? No. Um, I was laying the groundwork to, ultimately feel like I lived up to my potential in a way it feels authentic and enough for me. So, so I think, you know, it's interesting because there's so much about living your best life, you know, in your twenties and on social media, but I mean, most people's best lives are not in their twenties. And I say to my clients, if the best years of your life turn out to be your twenties, something has gone horribly wrong, right? Because it should, I mean, if you have a great life in your twenties, that's awesome, but you should also have a really great life in your thirties and your forties and your fifties. And trust me, when you get there, you're going to want one as much as you want it now, you're going to want it then. And, um, but for most people, you know, their best jobs, their best salaries, their, you know, kind of their best not even just relationships, but their best points in their relationships, their best friendships. I mean, most of that actually happens after your 20s. So I guess I would say take the heat off of all of trying to achieve that now and just think about 
laying the groundwork for that or, you know, working toward that. I think we definitely have this, this desire for like instant gratification. And I think that that's why we start to fall into these traps of either feeling like we didn't accomplish enough and feel like there's this pressure sometimes to just be extraordinary, mm-hmm. no matter the circumstance, um, whether it makes you happy, whether it doesn't, but just to have something to show and to, and that doesn't mean that all everyone who does this isn't ambitious or doesn't deserve, you know, fulfillment and joy and all of those beautiful things, but it's just this pressure to do it right away. And this resistance to do something like lay the groundwork. Like you said, I think we look at not being at a certain point by a certain time as a failure, as opposed to laying the groundwork for something potentially really beautiful. So I I think our audience, whether you realize it or not, will benefit from hearing that like, that's what it's about. That's what your twenties are for. Of course, enjoy as all of our time on, on the earth, this earth are meant to, is meant to be enjoyed, but also it, it's just those little steps. And along the way, we might figure something out that's different from what we expected we would want. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to figure something out. And I think that that's something you bring, you brought up a lot too, was just do something. Mm-hmm. Like you will get an answer from trying something no, no matter what it is. So let me ask you, um, because y'all are smart people, I can tell. And so if you can look around and see that if you think of, I don't know, 10 people that you admire or respect, or I don't even just mean are famous, like just famous people, but famous, well-known people that you admire, respect, or think, oh, I'd want to be them. Did they, were they at the sort of the apex of their career in their 20s? No. I mean, so there's some outliers. There's your Mark Zuckerbergs. There's, you know, but if he's not on your list or you don't have 10 of him, most of those people is, it was later. Right. So, so where's, where's the disconnect between that reality for them, but you feeling like you're failing by not having it for yourself. Social media. And Mm -hmm. it really comes back to the social media. And even though we know it, like, right. Know it. We know that it's the highlight reel. We know that those people that we look up to, like it didn't happen in their twenties. It's it like every time you really, like we were saying before, every single time you have to reprogram. Right. Like I it's feel a lot. Like, yeah. Not, like, cause I feel like I totally know that. Like when I take the step back, I totally know that. But still every time I open Instagram, I'm a failure. I'm, <laughs> I'm not there. Like, and, and it, mm-hmm. it's like, why? My question is like, why doesn't that stick? Right. Why is it? Yes. Like, why do we have to keep relearning that lesson? And I think it's partially due because like, we know it logically, but the way that we internalize it in that moment is just so different. Um, Because I think when we look at it, we do interpret it, even with what we know as that someone else's reality, you know, like, you know, that that's it. (laughs) But I don't know, it's it's very confusing. (laughs) Well, it's also the thinking, you know, there's the um, amazing Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is about sort of rational thinking and then like fast emotional thinking. So the emotional fast thinking, it's like fear-based, you know, and the fear is I'm going to fail. I won't be somebody else, you know, that I won't meet my potential. That thinking happens very quickly. And then there are rational thinking has to come in and be like, okay, I've got to unwind this again. <laughs> so, so, you're, so you're human. Um, you know, but I think you're, you're wise to pay attention to what's triggering this in you yeah. and make some choices around social media totally. that, that might be healthy 
er for you if I mean if you're speaking from experience or to figure out you know how can I put this in a corner you know how can I so I've had clients say okay I just have you know the one who told me she was on Instagram three hours a day actually I have should say that she's used uh, the pandemic to get sober which has been amazing and awesome and since she was getting good at kicking things that weren't good for her she's cut out Instagram and she said you just need to tell everybody get sober and cut out Instagram. They'll be oh so happy. <laughs> and I don't know if that's for everybody, but I have other clients who have taken apps that they look at too much off their phone and they're just on the, mm. the laptop, you know, cause that's less constant. But I mean, I think, you know, obviously social media is here to stay. And as adults, you were asking, you know, what's this thing with adulthood we have to do. And one of the things we have to do is moderate ourselves yeah. around substances, whether it's pot or drinking or other substances or food that it's it's sort of up to us to make healthy choices around that and without a doubt devices is is one of those yeah and there there are definitely so many like we we talk about how it can be really detrimental and really harmful but also there luckily there are some differences on social media where people are embracing vulnerability and where they are you know having conversations like the ones we have today or on our show and showing people like, Hey, I don't have it all together. And that was really scary for us to do after college. Cause of course we want to post, Oh, I won this award or whatever sometimes. Mm. Cause that's your, it's almost like your, I don't know, your go-to right? to be like, Hey, we don't have it all together was tricky, but it, we've found that it's made people connect on such a deeper level. Yeah. 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 And, and you mentioned time and, you know, setting limits and stuff like that. So boundaries are really difficult. I know I really struggle with setting boundaries in general. So whether it comes to comparing ourselves to others, negative thinking, what's your best advice on setting boundaries with ourselves and others like around our time? I mean, I think setting boundaries around, you know, social media or whatever is is a, a conversation between you and you, right? So it's just something you have to, it's like exercising of, okay, I've got to maybe create some sort of routine or brackets or I only check it at this hour or it's only on this device, you know, how exercise, okay, I'm going to sign up for a class so that then maybe I'll go. So, I mean, we kind of have these little hacks we do with ourselves. What I find boundaries that are, I don't know, most challenging, but in a different way, challenging, especially with 20 somethings and maybe with 20 somethings with women in particular is boundaries with other people mm-hmm. and that they really have trouble saying no, or I can't, or even I don't want to. And uh, <laughs> so, that's, that's a big one. So I had a, a client tell me one time she lived in a basement apartment and you could see the stairs to the apartment you know, they came down in front of a window and she had a particular friend who often did kind of the drop by, you know, without calling first. And if she saw her coming, but didn't want to hang out, she would go hide in the bathroom. And so we worked on really just as a metaphor for everything else, not that this one thing was, you know, a hill to die on, but just what if we just practiced you answering the door and saying, Hey, how's it going? You know, you're sweet to come by, but I can't hang out and just practice sort of saying it and getting rid of her and seeing life didn't come to an end. And they were still friends and that she felt sort of more in charge of her life. And and we, we kind of use that as a, a metaphor for a lot of things at work, you know, don't go hide in the bathroom, you know, deal with the person at the front door. And I, I think that's can be very liberating when you realize as a 20 something and maybe especially I don't know, as a 20 something woman that you can say no, I can't or not today. And you don't have to give 
a reason. You don't have to say, well, I don't want to, or I can't. You just say, oh, you know, I can't today. I'm sorry, but let's do it again. And just kind of, you know, it's, you're nodding. So you must know what I mean. Yeah. Making fun of Brenda. because <laughs> Brenda is the, the best ever. And, but she's a very big people pleaser. And, Which um, is one reason you're saying she's the best ever because she's a people pleaser. Right. Uh -huh. She gets it. She gets it. <laughs> so so I, I, I do I harp on her sometimes that she could be better about setting boundaries with Oh yeah. Time. And I'm super aware of it. <laughs> so I'm just poking at her. It's true. It's so true. I mean, this will sound unrelated, but it's sort of a an older older person's professional realization around the same thing is that I realized with clients, but then again, with books going on podcasts or radio stations, just because someone asks you a question doesn't mean you have to answer it. <laughs> and um, that was very useful for me. I mean, politicians have been saying that for years, right? No matter what someone asks them, they just go ahead and talk about what they want to talk about. But it's there's something similar there that I think as humans, as women, I don't know that people ask something or want something and we feel that we have to respond to that thing or do that thing or at yep. least address that thing rather than just not um, in some way. And it, it can be very liberating to just not have to go there because someone else has. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it's, it's funny you say that because something I admire about Julia is that she's very good at setting boundaries and very good at just like expressing what she needs. And then it's, it's, it's like a, a social experiment for me to witness the way she handles those things and for me to watch how other people react to it. And she's laughing, but I'm so serious because I noticed that when we meet people, which is something that I do, no matter how deeply I love and care for others, um, when I meet people with so much like with care, but also some hesitancy, they meet me with hesitancy back. You know, they meet me with some discomfort or maybe feeling like they could take control of a situation. Whereas when Julia, when I watch her set such a strong boundary of this is the way that it is, and that doesn't mean she's disrespectful. <laughs> Um, people meet her with like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Like that's what she's doing, you know? So it's, it's something about having that confidence in what it is that you're doing and shifting the beliefs around those conversations. It, it not only for yourself, but when you believe it, other people believe it too, you know? So right. that's something I'm constantly working on. <laughs> yeah. And just having yourself be the center. And I mean, in a, in a healthy way that you can't, yeah. you don't just get pulled off every time someone else has a request or a question mm -hmm. or a, a, a need that you're still able to think about where you were headed. I'm glad you said that because you also talk about in the book about, I think you say like finding your roots in the wind, mm -hmm. um, something along those lines. And I loved that. It's also something me and Brenna talk a lot about. We're very big on like morning routines and like setting our setting nice. day because um, like we can control that and try not to be so shaken All right. mm -hmm. around us, not only when it comes to boundaries, but also like, I think you bring it up um, in the book by like the mean boss or by the guy not texting you back for, for right. Years. So do you have any like tips or tools to find those roots and, and make those roots strong? Yeah. I mean, the obvious one is the more, you know, the, the more you experience something that, you know, you, you can say, you know, even if it's losing a job of, well, I've lost a job before and I found another job, you know, or I've been through, you know, the horrible heart ripped out of my chest breakout breakup. And I found love again. And it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt to lose people, but you sort of realize, you know, there is life after 
setback and heartbreak and adversity or life after getting yelled at by your boss and you go in the next day and realize he doesn't even remember because he didn't even care. And so the moment you're like, Oh my God, this is huge. You know, I'm going to get fired. And then you realize it's nothing um, to them. Okay. It's big for you, but it's nothing for them. So, I mean, you know, the more you experience these things, the easier it is to say, oh, been here before, this will pass or something else will come along. But, you know, until then, I think just to be aware of um, catastrophic thinking. So in uncertain situations, uncertainty makes people anxious and anxious people tend to think catastrophically. So they think I'm going to get fired. My, this, this person I like didn't text me back. They're, they're not into me anymore that they immediately, they want certainty. So they go to the negative certainty, which is protective of like, I got to prepare for the worst and get ready and protect myself. But it's not very adaptive if, you know, in the modern world when there's sort of always something, right? Like it's it's always something. And if you're always going to the worst place, you're going through a lot of sort of physical and emotional stress unnecessarily. So to try to remember that I've said this and, um, you know, the next time something happens to notice yourself doing the worst case scenario thinking and saying, I mean, it's sort of, it's like the rolling back on social media of like, okay, I see myself doing this. I don't have to do this. I don't know. I'm just going to live with the uncertainty for 24 hours. And often 24 hours is in many situations, all it takes to get to the other side of that thing, you know, by then you've gotten the text message, or you found out why you didn't get the text message, or you've seen your boss again, they don't even remember yelling at you. Yeah. <laughs> You're not fired. So just kind of the 24 hour rule is helpful. I mean, of course, there are bigger problems that, you know, go on for longer than 24 hours. But I think to start with that one of just knowing what catastrophic thinking is, it's normal, everybody does it. Mm. But to just kind of metabolize it a bit better and decide like, I'm not going to do that for 24 hours and then see. Yeah, totally. It's funny because we, we record our episode. Of course we do our, a solo episode and we interview someone at least once a week. And we normally share a, a like high of our week and a low of our week. We could call it pride and pickle. Um, and every week when we record, when we listen back, either when Julia edits the show or when I listen back for some graphics or our social media, I'm like, Oh, I'm over that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm so over that we have living proof that every week we're over whatever we want. <laughs> That's so good. That's great. So I hope this is okay. You need to regularly reference that on your show. Yes. But yeah, the thing that was like the big low by the next week. Oh, whatever. Over, you know? yeah. But you know, it's interesting is that what people do with I've never heard it called the pickle. I love that. But um, now what do you talk about more your pride or your pickle? Not on the show, but in your life? Like, I mean, do you call your friend and say, the best thing happened to me today? Or do you call your friend and say, Oh my God, my boss yelled at me today? Honestly, our well with me and Brenda are we're very vulnerable. So we do go to each other a lot for those hard Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Okay. So hard things or advice. But I think maybe if you go further out than like a best friend, it's usually more the 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 pride as we right. Go. Well, I guess what I was gonna say is I you're taking it in an interesting place, which I think is good. I guess what I was going to say is that we do know the brain, it has a negative bias. It's again, it's the kind of the catastrophic thinking If we pay attention to like what went wrong, what could go wrong, because we have to stay alive and survive, right? And we have animal brains. 
you know, back in there. And so we tend to notice the negative more and we hype the negative more. So, you know, we'll spend 30 minutes talking about how somebody cut me off in traffic and they yeah. me off and how dare they, and you like go on and on and on. And so by doing that, you're, you're giving it a lot of space, you mm. know? Um, and I mean, it's different to say like, oh, the worst thing happened to me today. Can you support me versus like, I just have to sort of give the negative thing all this airtime. So I'm, I don't think y'all would have known this, but have you ever heard of semester at sea? Probably. Actually, yeah. yes. Okay. All right. Um, so I was teaching on semester at sea this spring on a boat in Asia when COVID broke out. And so, and I was actually teaching positive psychology, which is, you know, sort of the science of happiness for lack of a better phrase. But anyhow, we talked a lot about the catastrophic thinking and how it's so easy when something goes wrong. It's like a drop of gray paint and a bucket of white paint. You know, we just feel like it's ruined. And all we can think about is that drop of gray paint, you know, that we forget about the bucket of white paint. But where I was going with that is, is that it's, we get really hung up on the pickle and then yet you realize a week later you're over it or there's a different pickle that you need to pay attention to. So I think knowing how your mind works is useful, even though you kind of still have to do the unwinding, but sort of the more practice you have with it, the less, you know, the more you go, okay, 24 hour roll. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be catastrophic about this. And you just get a little bit better at it. It becomes a little more automatic. I like that rule. I like that 24 hour rule. Me too. Step back. We can always do that. We kind of talked about it earlier, but one of the things there's a whole, obviously there's a whole section in the book about love and relationship. Unfortunately, we didn't get to too much of that today, but just one thing on that that I do want to touch on. We had a conversation with three other male podcasters a couple episodes ago, and we were talking about relationships and work and all three of them, which I thought was very interesting set were like, well, I got to focus on my career first before I can like feel like I'm really like ready for a relationship. And it's funny, like, it's, it's something that I've been thinking about more lately. So can can we do both? Can you can you put the time into the career and put the time into the relationship in this crazy 20s time? Um, You can, you definitely can. Although I would not say that it's unusual at all for 20 something men and women to say I've, I need to make get some traction on my career before I can feel like an adult who can engage in, you know, sort of something beyond like a hookup or a dalliance or whatever. And so I, I mean, some people absolutely, I mean, so many people have written to me and said, Hey, you know, we got started young on career and partner and baby in our twenties. And, you know, your book inspired us to like, what are we waiting for? And so some people are doing or are able to do all that. And eventually you have to put them all together. You can't just put like work in the 20 something bucket and like love in the 30 something bucket eventually they have to go together but I don't think it's uncommon and I nor do I think it's unhealthy for um men and women to say I really need to get myself sorted out before I kind of combine myself with another person. I mean, we could talk about gender issues all day. My my degree in, uh, from Berkeley is clinical psych and gender studies. And, you know, it's interesting, the more things have changed, 
the more some things have remained the same. And I mean, some of this is in the updated version, the defining decade, but there's a lot of stats out there still about how at the end of the day, and this was surveys of, you know, 50,000 workers at Fortune 500 companies in Boston, you know, how do they perceive themselves as workers and as parents? At the end of the day, both men and women tend to perceive men as, you know, they're to be the primary breadwinner, even if we don't, you know, maybe we expect to make as much as more as a partner. But at the end of the day, maybe we won't, you know, and I think that men feel a lot of pressure around that's going to be expected of them that yeah. this isn't like I'll work if I want to this is a I've got to work. And now that might sound super traditional and not every partnership is going to go that way, but that's still the default, I think, in a lot of people's minds. And so I think young men especially feel like they're just not, they just have nowhere to operate from if they don't have career figured out. Whereas I, I think, you know, in some ways, young women, maybe in ways that are good, they feel like they have a bit more flexibility to say, am I really hardcore in my career? Am I hardcore on kids? Am I going to put them all together? But there's still kind of a lot of old school thinking around, you know, that men really have to have something going on in the career department. And, you know, maybe it would be healthy if they didn't feel that so much pressure around that first, but they tend to. Yeah, those three certainly did. And that's really, it's really interesting. I mean, that's a whole nother show. Because, you know, <laughs> tangents about that. Um, and like the back, you know, since we've had this whole shift towards feminine feminism, which is incredible but how does it balance out you know eventually like the, the pendulum has to swing somewhere more in the middle and right. very interesting it's very interesting to see like how you know because the women's perspective has changed so much and is changing how the the men have to kind of catch up right like how that's gonna especially at this age like how that that plays a part in like what they perceive their role to be right that women feel like they have more choices you know in theory i mean yeah. you know economics and pandemics right. tend to intersect with those but in theory like I, there's a lot of different ways to be a woman in the world these days and i think you know men's roles are expanding less quickly um and i i mean and in a way, I mean, we're all to blame for that. And then I, I do think that both my male clients expect that they'll be relied upon to have a job, you know, at all times somehow. And I think, you know, a lot of my female clients, I don't know that I don't know that they feel that pressure, even though statistically speaking, most of us will always be, I mean, I've never not had a job and, you know, most of us will probably always be working, but there's still that whole asterisk of like, well, I, I could go a different way. Oh. And I don't know if men feel that as much. Yeah. So interesting. Totally. A whole other show. <laughs> yes. A whole other show. <laughs> so we just have a couple last questions for you before we like, okay. you're, thank you for being so generous with your time. Oh, no, sure. Yeah. Incredible. You brought it up before as well. And in the book, you say, if you're paying attention to your life as a 20 something, the real glory days are still to come. And you, you brought that up earlier about, you know, hopefully your life beyond your 20s will be better than your 20s. Yes. And all amazing. But what what has been the biggest help to you in paying attention, like paying attention to your life? And as much as we're being proactive and, and being in motion, also enjoying it, using this defining decade to the best of our ability, I think sometimes right. it's hard to sit back and like pay attention to our life and take real inventory of like what we have to be grateful for. and all the joyous things because we're always on to the next or wanting to do the 
Mm-hmm. Better thing. Um, you know, for me personally, and I mean, this might be something about my psychology, but I have, I do better when my time is limited. So when I perceive that time is limited, I both work harder and enjoy my life more because I perceive that I don't, you know, can't sort of do all that somehow later or, you know, whatever. And so one of the most productive periods of my life actually was when I had two little babies because I had no time. And so actually I wrote the defining decade at like five o'clock in the morning before they would wake up or I wrote whole sections of it at bounce and play, you know, what, like in the, I'm sitting there writing it and there, and I'm looking over at them on like the bouncy gym and I just didn't have any time. And so I didn't have any time to mess around. I didn't have any time to go down the rabbit holes that I didn't need to go down. I needed to say what I had to say and, you know, realize that I needed to get it done every time I had a spare minute. Mm. At the same time, having limited time sort of also helps me enjoy more. I mean, kind of kids have helped with that too. You realize they're not going to be around forever. So you try to enjoy, you know, what you can enjoy now. And so for me, it's whenever I feel like I have limited time, I make better use of it. And a lot of that, you know, I've a lot of people have said, oh my gosh, the defining decade, it's freaking me out. I realize I don't have infinite time. And I'm secretly thinking, you know, it's really better that you realize you don't have infinite time probably because that does, even though it can make us feel a bit, you know, stressed or anxious, that's also where some urgency comes from. And if people give you the urgency, but also the tools, then you can do something there. So for me, it's, it's, you know, any way that I can realize I've kind of got a deadline on something like a true deadline in the world or a personal deadline, then, and, and that also goes for, you know, enjoying my life, I tend to make sort of enjoyment deadlines of, you know, going on semester at sea, for example, something I just did for the fun of it. And I didn't have, you know, I can't wait forever. I'm not going to be able to go biking through Vietnam if I'm doing it at 60. So I needed to go ahead and do it. And so I try to give myself the urgency. Mm, Love that. Definitely. I feel like we do either wait for things or wait for the right moment for something. And sometimes you just need to take that first step or that step that'll lead you in a certain direction. So I think that's, that's helpful because especially in our twenties, I think this is probably a lifelong thing, but I think we wait for the right moment. And sometimes like there's no sign as to when that is, you just have to take a step and then you'll know if it was, you know, what was meant to happen or not. (laughs) Right. Or you make what happened possible. Yeah. Whatever was meant to happen. Like, well, that's what I did. So yep, that's (laughs) that's what happened. (laughs) Totally. And you took something from it. Right. Um, This has been so wonderful. Likewise. So much. We just have two last questions for you. You got it. If you could tell yourself, little 20s, Dr. Meg J, one thing, what would you tell her? Um, I have been asked this question a thousand times and I, because that's a great question and I have my same answer hasn't changed in 10 years of answering the question. And this is unique, not unique, but this is relevant to me, right? So your 20 something self may need to hear something different. But if I, people ask me like, what would you have done differently about your 20s or, you know, blah, 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 whatever. I usually say I probably would have taken my relationships a bit seriously, more seriously, a bit sooner. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think like many modern 20 somethings, I got it. Like I got to get out there and, you know, bust my tail at work and go get a PhD and 
you know, figure out how I'm ever going to pay all these bills. Everybody says I'm going to have eventually in a mortgage, I'm supposedly going to have eventually like that all made sense to me. I think the relationship piece, because it's harder to put on like a schedule, you don't go to graduate school for it. I couldn't really figure out how to engage with that in a meaningful way as earlier as early as I might like to have. And I mean, I'm happily married. I have two awesome kids. However, as I make very clear in the book, there was a period of my life in my 30s that was extremely crunched. And even though I just said I was very productive during that time, it was not easy. And that, and I'm talking about like two years, one year, just a little bit more wiggle room for myself in my 30s, I think would have been healthier for me personally, mm-hmm. maybe yeah. not for you or for your listeners. But you know, I think that I remember I was in grad school and I was talking to a mentor and I don't remember how it came up, but she said something like, well, could you just go ahead? And because I was, you know, with my partner and she said something like, well, could you just go ahead and, you know, have a baby now? I was like, no, I'm in grad school. I have to finish grad school before I do any of this. Mm -hmm. Like I was doing that whole, like, I can't put these things together thing. And so I waited in a very linear fashion. I'm going to finish. I literally walked across the stage pregnant with my first baby. I'm going to have this clear work then family thing going on, which was fine. It all panned out. But uh, in retrospect, I could have woven those together sooner than I did. Mm -hmm. And um, so back to your excellent earlier point is I think it makes sense to get your feet on the ground career wise, but I do think we can weave them together maybe a bit sooner that then mm-hmm. ends up saving us a bit of a crunch. Yeah, in the mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. I think it's something, if anything, for people to think about and see how that they can take that and either apply it to their life or, you know, or not, that. right. Or not exactly. Take, take what works for you and leave what you don't. Yeah. Uh, what does not get to it? But for everyone listening, like in the book, there's obviously a whole part on relationships and love and also on network and networking and like mm-hmm. now, which was very impactful to me. So just for everyone to have things to look forward to. When That's they- right. They got to read it. Got to get out yeah, there. And gotta. Start to read it. <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot of relationship stuff in there that was extremely impactful. Excellent. Definitely. Good, good. And speaking of the book, which of course we've talked about a lot today, but where can people find you? Where can they find your work and where can they get the book? Where? I think, I hope if my people are doing their job properly, they should be able to get the book everywhere at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books A Million, Walmart. I mean, Kindle, iBooks, it should be everywhere or else somebody's in hot water. Yeah, it's already, it's been already available for pre-order on, on. Yep. Like, yep. 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 <laughs> so it's, um, by the time y'all post this, it'll be fully out, out, although it's currently pre-order, you can get it. Yeah. If you have follow-up questions or whatever, I'm megj.com. I'm pretty easy to find on the internet anyway. So incredible. Um, yeah. So, Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a great way to end my day. So good. Good luck with the podcast and end your 20s and beyond. And beyond. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Roaring 20s Podcast. Be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and please subscribe. You're never alone. Our pride sticks together. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Roaring 20s Podcast. You get to start your week with us and end your week with us. With love, Brenda and Julia. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.